The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Born to be Breastfed with your host, Marie Biancuso. Our program aims to help you bust through the breastfeeding myths and ensure you and your baby enjoy the breastfeeding journey. Over the next hour, we'll help you figure out how to overcome the obstacles you might encounter and how to incorporate breastfeeding into your busy life. Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. Thank you so much for joining me at Born to be Breastfed. I'm your host tonight, and I, well, actually, I'm your host every night, but tonight I have with me a special guest, Tracy Castles. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Marie, for having me. Tracy is phd prepared expertly passionate and truly lives what she teaches and what she understands about sleep issues tracy's going to help us tonight to better understand some of the myths and some of the facts that surround parenting uh, particularly as related to breastfeeding and i should add not only is Tracy a breastfeeding mother, she is like right this moment a breastfeeding mother. <laughs> so. He just finished nursing, so we're hoping he'll go an hour, but you oh, never know. Good. At two well, months, you never might know. Be sooner. Yes, for sure, for sure. So, Tracy, my real goal tonight is to help parents to figure out some of the things that I've heard over many years of practice as a clinical nurse specialist. And I think that probably at the top of that list is people start getting really uneasy if their baby is four months old and not sleeping through the night because they tell me babies should sleep through the night before by age three months. What Mm -hmm. say you, myth or fact? complete total myth. And that's not to say that there won't be some babies that do sleep through the night by three months, but that there is zero evidence that babies should be sleeping through the night by three months. Okay, then. So tell us a little bit about that biology. Well, we know that a lot of this is based on previous research that did find that about 50% of babies were sleeping through the night at three months. This is many, many years ago. This research was done. And a lot of people thought that that meant babies should be sleeping through the night by three months. Well, there are a few things that need to be considered with the previous research and what subsequently followed. And the first is really that that research was done predominantly on formula-fed babies. Oh, mm-hmm. So we, already we know there's a very different biology of sleep yes. for formula-fed versus breastfed babies. Secondly, it used a totally different definition of sleeping through the night um, than what most parents commonly believe of, which is that you're going to get your baby sleeping from whenever you put them down to bed to when you wake them up in the morning. But also that this actually transitioned, that after three months, babies started going back to waking more frequently. So there was something special about this kind of three-month period that was happening biologically that seems to lead to a 
peak period of sleeping through, but this doesn't necessarily hold on and it not necessarily shouldn't hold on. Because when you think about baby's biology and you think about uh, the size of their stomach, the frequency with which they need to be fed, and just all the different cognitive changes, the neurological development, the learning to crawl, the teething, separation mm. anxiety, everything under the sun goes on, of course they're going to be waking. How could they not? Sure. Um, and none of this even considers that even historically, us adults didn't sleep through the night. This is a very new phenomenon in that this eight hours of sleep at night didn't used to happen. It was kind of the onset of electricity and our ability to stay up later that has led to this. And when you look at other hunter-gatherer or more traditional uh, societies, this period of awake in the middle of the night still exists. So biologically speaking, babies are much more in tuned with what we should be doing than I think even us adults are. Well, that's pretty mind-boggling. You're <laughs> telling me that if I had lived, say, in 1800 and I did not have electricity, I would not have slept Eight hours no, a night. and there's tons uh-huh. of stories about what people used to do in the middle of the uh-huh. night. Um, it was a good time for people to light a candle and read. Uh, apparently, in some societies, a very good time for sex. Okay. So, <laughs> it was a fun time in the middle of All the right. night. <laughs> and so this was... Very prominent and very common. And we, with the onset of electricity, we started being able to stay up later. Uh, and so we kind of fell out of line with that and started condensing our days into being up longer, but then having to get this condensed sleep period at night. So when our babies are awake in the middle of the night, they're actually really attuned with their biology uh, of what our bodies need in terms of sleep and wake. So we can't really be expecting them to do what they're not biologically primed to do. Tracy, I want to make sure I underline what I think you just said a few minutes ago, what babies do do and what they should do. Yes. Uh, So I guess that as a nurse, I have often seen babies do things and then I've been told what babies do do. And then I sometimes I agree. Yeah, that's what they do do, or maybe what they do do, but that's not necessarily the way it's supposed to be. Am I reading this right? Yeah, you Uh absolutely are, is I think we have such strange expectations, and it ties into what we're talking about here in terms of myths. There's so many weird ideas about what we think babies should be doing, and in many times we force them to do it. Yeah. So yeah. it seems like the norm. So when, even when you talk about sleeping through the night by age three months, well, in a society where everyone is starting sleep training earlier and earlier because they're told that's what they need to do, suddenly a baby sleeping through, and we can talk about whether they're actually sleeping through or not another day, does seem like the normal thing that people panic because it's all around them. But that doesn't mean yeah. it's biologically normal. It doesn't mean it's what their body should be doing. We're just should be doing forcing it into fitting our cultural ideals. Yeah, you know, anytime that people tell me that all babies do this or (laughs) all geriatric patients do that, you know, my antenna goes right up because I'm thinking, yeah, I know they do, but does that mean that that makes it normal or desirable or or best? Mm -hmm. So, Tracy, help me with this one. This is another one that I get very frequently is... Breastfeeding mothers wake more frequently and they get less overall sleep and somewhere the whole bed sharing comes into that discussion. So, and by the way, I fight this a lot in the hospital, but kind of at home too, in the sense of, well, I don't want to breastfeed because I'm going to have to, uh, 
I'm never going to be able to get any sleep that way. And what most people miss is this is obviously a myth, uh, except it's also not going back to our issue of what people do versus what they should be doing. Um, so if I package this together, yes, breastfeeding babies often wake more frequently. That it seems to hold true. But actually breastfeeding moms, based on the research, depending on their sleeping arrangements, can get more sleep than the mothers who are not using, who are formula feeding. So part of this stems to what you mentioned, the bed sharing, is we know that bed sharing facilitates breastfeeding and that breastfeeding facilitates bed sharing. And when we have a mother in an environment where she's sleeping close to her baby, again, although this is not what we do, it's not normal in our society to be sleeping right next to your baby, Biologically speaking, it's incredibly normal to sleep normal. next to your baby. Mm-hmm. And this uh-huh. is what we've done for human history uh, and still is very common in most other places of the world. They think we're rather cruel to be putting our babies in other rooms, depending on the society that you ask. Um, so when we say that breastfeeding mothers don't get enough sleep, part of that is to do with the way we've structured our sleeping arrangements. So if you're breastfeeding and you have to wake up regularly, but you have to go into the nursery and keep yourself awake while you sit in a rocking chair feeding a baby, you are not going to get a lot of sleep because they are going to be waking more frequently. However, if you're sleeping in close proximity, whether it's co-sleeping with your baby in a bassinet right up next to the bed or a side card crib or your bed sharing safely, when you're doing that, The baby wakes, and in fact, they're usually just rousing by the time they latch on. They're not even fully awake. They nurse, they fall back asleep, and so do you. They're in and and out. Yeah, and as you get used to it, I'm sure I'm not the only, well, I know I'm not the only breastfeeding mother who has experienced the knowledge that I don't actually know how many times I might have woken up by breastfeeding because you just end up being slightly aroused. And I think this is what the research really reflects is when you look at mothers like that, they're actually reporting much more sleep than the people who actually have to get up, whether it's to formula feed because you have to prepare the bottle or because they've put their baby in a separate sleeping arrangement. So I would kind of modify that to say that, yes, breastfeeding mothers may wake more frequently, but when combined with our biologically normal sleeping arrangements, they're definitely not getting less sleep overall. Yes. So it is the breastfeeding hopefully keeps the baby close to you. Mm-hmm. And by the way, forgive me for one minute here if I go off on a bit of a tangent. I know that you're <laughs> not an anthropologist, but but tell me this. In, in others, is it true? Do you know that Americans, are, and I guess you're a Canadian, huh? Yeah. Uh, that, that Americans are the only society that actually puts their baby in a separate room and sleeps with their spouse as opposed to their baby. I don't know if that's really true. Do you know anything about that? Well, I know they're not the only one. I mean, the UK, it's very common there, too. In most, uh, I'd say, Western developed societies, that is far more normal. Uh, than other even Eastern developed societies. So it's not just a matter of developed versus developing, but also East-West. There tends to be a a cultural difference as well. So you look at Japan where bed sharing is incredibly common. Common, Um, yes. Yeah, I had a great image that I'll have to send you, but it's of a mattress store in Japan that a mother sent me because she lives there. And it's they basically rate the mattress size by how many adults and kids are in the bed. (laughs) 
<laughs> so you know, it's oh, got the picture funny. of you know one single uh, adult two adults yeah. two adults with one child two adults with two kids and that's basically how you pick your mattress size so oh, it's excellent. yeah well, it's so about, we're going to talk there. about this more on the other side of the break yeah meanwhile i would just like to thank our uh, uh sponsor tonight mama va that's m-a-m-a-v-a mama va they create a lactation suite that is a freestanding station and offers mothers and their babies a safe clean functional and beautifully designed space to pump or nurse thank you to mama va and i'm marie biancuto i'll be right back with tracy castles we're going to be talking a lot more about sleeping and breastfeeding don't go away we'll be right back Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you enjoy listening to Marie Biancuso? Do you think your staff would enjoy listening to Marie? As the past president of Baby Friendly USA, Marie currently offers baby-friendly training programs, online only, live only, or a combination of live and online education. If you are tired of listening to a boring lecture in a dark room, watching bullet point slides with a brief chance for questions at the end, come and enjoy a truly interactive learning online or live program with Marie. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894 to find an option that works for your staff. Breastfeeding Outlook, owned and operated by Marie Biancuso, is America's premier provider of breastfeeding education. If you're a nurse, lactation consultant, dietitian, midwife, physician, doula, or other professional, Breastfeeding Outlook is your source for SERPs, nursing contact hours, and CEUs to meet your certification or licensure requirements in all 50 states. Join Marie at a seminar in one of many U.S. cities or learn online. Marie has helped thousands to pass the IBLCE exam on the first try, and she can help you, too. Call to find out how to get an easy payment plan for Marie's IBLCE exam prep course. And if your hospital is seeking the baby-friendly hospital designation, we can help you with that, too, through expert training and value-based consultation. We have a variety of packages to meet your needs without breaking your budget. Sign up for a live or online course or inquire about training today. Please visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Evidence for your practice starts here. Visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listening to Born to Be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed. I'm here today with Tracy Castles, Ph.D., founder and head writer of Evolutionary Parenting. For those of you who are interested, you can find Tracy at 
evolutionparenting.com. But for right now, you can also find her right here because I'm going to grill her on all of these myths that I keep hearing. And then I'm going to see what Tracy has to say about that. All right. So, Tracy, a lot of the time, what I hear when when people talk about sleeping through the night, I want to know what constitutes through the night. Is that hours of darkness or <laughs> is that the time that the parent sleeps or the time the parent wishes they could sleep or the time that most babies do sleep? What exactly is the definition of sleep through the night? Well, it really depends on who you ask. Uh-huh. Um, if you ask many of the self-proclaimed baby experts out there today, uh, you might get an answer of in the ballpark of 12 hours of a 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. Oh, yeah. to... Wait a minute. Are you talking about like for a young infant? Uh, yes, hours? I am talking Whoa. about a young infant. I know. Uh-oh. It's it, the, yeah. Uh, it dep- and for some parents, they just want when they're asleep, the eight hours. Um, the standard research definition of the matter, which has changed in recent times because of this changing societal view of sleep, but the earlier research was all based on a five-hour period and a very specific five-hour period between midnight and 5 a.m., And so when we look at earlier research, especially I mentioned earlier the one where about 50% of babies were, quote unquote, sleeping through the night, they Uh were sleeping in that period 12 a.m. to 5 a.m. And that was what constituted sleeping through the night for that group. So we can't say that even those 50% of babies that were sleeping through the night at three, which we used to say babies should sleep through the night now, actually means they should be able to sleep eight to 12 hours. It doesn't even fit with the previous research. So, yeah, but it all depends on who you ask. And many researchers feel that babies need to be sleeping long, condensed periods. Um, Some believe this starts at six months. Some will go and say you need to start right at birth and that they should be sleeping 12 hours by 12 weeks. So I want to go back to this part about what constitutes sleeping, I guess. (laughs) I have worked a lot of nights in a newborn nursery, particularly when I was a young nurse. And there are babies that close their eyes, but they're not necessarily asleep. So do we have any information on what constitutes sleeping during these <laughs> these? These hours when they're, you know, assumed to be sleeping, are they really sleeping? Well, I think you've just touched right on the issue, which is they're assumed to be sleeping. Um, And much of the research we have when we have objective measurements of infant sleep, whether it's um, the videos of babies or Uh the actiographs that measure their movement to test it, we see that these babies are actually, they may be quiet from you know, eight hours or five or whatever, but they're actually not always sleeping. Oftentimes they are waking just as frequently as a baby who might cry out for their parents, um, but they themselves are not crying out, but they certainly are not sleeping anymore than the other babies. So this adds a little wrinkle in the the topic here, because if you think your baby should be sleeping through the night, really what you're saying is, I'm hoping my baby doesn't call for me through the night is what we're talking about. I guess I'm thinking the reverse as well, Tracy. I'm thinking about some babies that I've seen that they do sort of let out some little cry of some kind. Mm -hmm. I go, I sort of stroke the baby on the back and the baby quiets down. I guess he goes back to sleep. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
so I guess where I'm confused is, is there any objectivity to what constitutes sleep? You mentioned the actiographs. Are, are, mm-hmm. would, would you consider those sort of um, hard evidence or, or EEGs or what? There's definitely some conflicting views on how perfect they are because babies are notoriously, they move quite a bit Yeah, um, <laughs> in their sleep. So the measure does account for that. It does, when that's set for babies, it's supposed to measure a certain amount of sleep as being normal. But okay. clearly, it's going to depend on the baby as to how accurate it is at any given time. So I think, I mean, when I at least talk to parents, my biggest thing with sleep is you're less worried about what you perceive to be these hours. You shouldn't be measuring hours and looking at it. It's you look at the child. If your child's showing signs of sleep deprivation, well, then something else is happening. Um, If your child's happy, healthy, and thriving, but they're calling out to you, whether they go right back to sleep like you described, or they actually need to feed, or they wake up, or whatever it is, but everything else is going great, well, that's just them. That's how it's going. And it is entirely normal. Yeah, you're giving us an awful lot to think about here, Tracy. This is not as cut and dried. All right, so so let's go with this this three month thing. Which, by the way, I don't I don't buy that. <laughs> but but what about the parents who say, "Well, my baby did at three months. Lo and behold, he really did sleep through the night, whatever that is. But now he doesn't sleep through the night at all." And yeah. and we're a couple of months later than three months. He's not he's not doing it anymore. What did I do wrong? Uh, is it is it what they did wrong? Myth or fact? Uh, total myth. They did nothing wrong. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, even the research that looked at the babies that were sleeping through at three months, when they then started looking at them later, these same babies by six months, most of them were not sleeping through anymore. Uh-huh. So three months seems to be this mythical period in which you get the best type of sleep or the the longest stretches of sleep that you're going to get from an infant for a while uh, without sleep training. I'm talking about the biological norm here. You can yes. kind of force an infant to do a lot of things, and that's a topic for another call. Another day. <laughs> but, it's, but in terms of what they're going to do on their own, most babies will wake at least periodically. Um, and it will increase starting after three months. And that continues for a while. And it's not parents doing something wrong, despite people telling them, oh, you nurse them to sleep, you bounce them to sleep. That's why they're not sleeping. When you think about how much happens in infant development in that first year, and especially starting after the three months. So the most common at around three, four months is the onset of teething. Right. Teeth may not erupt till about six months, but the pain and the discomfort of the process beginning starts around three or four months for most babies. Mm-hmm. And some may already have teeth by that time. Some will go later. But this is when we start to see some changes. And if you're in pain all the time, think about how well you sleep. Not, I presume, not very, not very, not very well at all. Right. right. Um, then you start adding in sitting up, which uses muscles. We have new research out that is kind of a duh factor for all parents. But when babies start crawling, it interrupts sleep. Um, with them waking more. And again, this should not be surprising. They're using new muscles. The muscles are building. And if you've ever started going to the gym after a period of inactivity, the soreness and pain of using those muscles again sticks with you for quite a while. 
Um, but also what doesn't happen with us and happens with babies is they've got the ongoing neurological development and the new movement allows them to see the world and process things in a new way. And this is huge. And the closest I think we can compare it to is when you learn something new or you're really engaged with something, a new topic you're learning about, oftentimes, at least me and I know other people I know feel the same, we get... It runs through our heads all night. Absolutely. You, you struggle to get back to sleep. Oh, my God. I, you're almost Absolutely. intrigued by it all. It's You're completely into it, and you're thinking about ways of applying it or sharing it or whatever it is that you're learning, how it applies. So the same thing's happening with babies, only they have a lot more that they're trying to take in. Process, it's the entire yes. world. And when they're combining all these different senses because they're suddenly getting new sensory input, um, they're learning, for instance... Uh, that they learn object permanence. Things uh are there even when they disappear. Well, this also leads to issues of separation anxiety. Sure. Because suddenly they have to learn, oh, wait a second, is mom coming back? I know she's out there somewhere, but where? And Or dad, whoever it is. But I want them back again. So separation anxiety causes sleep disturbances too. Uh, They expect to be there with you and they need to feel secure and safe with you. So... And many of these things also can be alleviated slightly by having this co-sleeping or room-sharing arrangement um, where babies do get to see you and, you know, they get the comfort. The constant nursing helps alleviate some of the pain from teething. Um, It helps alleviate separation anxiety when they're close and at night they can hear your breathing uh, and everything. But how it fixes things is a topic for later, but these short sleep intervals in short are not due to anything parents do. It's this natural cascade of a million different things happening to our infants that they have to process and that naturally disrupt sleep as they would for us as well. Tracy, in the minute or so that we have left in this segment, tell me this. when A, a lot of parents will say that if you let him... Uh, just do his own thing with sleeping when he's really young in those first few months, that he will forever be a terrible sleeper. Is there any truth to that? No. And the long, the short of it is that the longitudinal evidence we have does not support that view at all, despite it being shared. And there is longitudinal research. Um, okay. The longer story is for later. We can talk about it after the break. Oh, how was that? <laughs> but but the short answer is what the baby does in terms of his sleep patterns right now does not necessarily predict what he's going nope. to do later. Is that true? It, exactly. There is That's- no research that says it predicts it at all. I'm liking it. And Tracy gave me <laughs> such a lead in for uh, the next segment. So, hey, everybody, don't go away. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed. I'm here today with my guest, Tracy Castles, founder of evolutionaryparenting.com. We'll be right back after this short break. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. 
Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Born to Be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm your host for Born to Be Breastfed. I'm here today with Tracy Castles from evolutionaryparenting.com. Tracy, before the break, uh, I basically summarized by, I think I summarized correctly, saying that uh, the baby's current habits, so to speak, in, in in, in sleeping don't necessarily predict what he's going to sleep like later. You wanted to expound on that. Here you go. I did, yeah. Well, the reason being is that I can, as I said it, I heard people in the back going, no, 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 I know I've read research that says that if you bed share here, they have later problems. And there is, there was a study that came out and it hit the news, um, I believe it was about a year ago, that said it linked bed sharing in infancy to later sleep problems. Problems. Yeah, I love that and, one. Yeah. And it's, so what I want to clarify is that the research, first off, didn't really find that. Um, but this is where we get into something with research that is so important for parents to understand and what often gets lost, which is this idea of what we call the third variable problem. Okay. And it means that you have to be certain that the relationship you're seeing is causal and not because there's some underlying factor that affects both of the things you're looking at, both of the factors. So in the case of this research with bed sharing and later sleep problems, we do know that there is a bunch of research showing that there's a type of bed sharing called reactive bed sharing, in which there's already an underlying problem. And parents bring their kids to bed to try and fix it or deal with it. Yes, um, agreed. Mm-hmm. But often what can happen is that underlying problem leads to greater rates of bed sharing, but also leads to greater rates of potential sleep problems down the line. Okay. So, for example, children with autism who oh, are later uh-huh. diagnosed as autistic often have retrospectively reported poor sleep in infancy. So parents may be trying to get that, but they also have poor sleep later in many cases in the research. So it may be that that is the triggering factor for both this link between bed sharing early and later sleep problems that people might be seeing is that it's really to do with something else that leads people to do some of these other behaviors. Children with um, who are highly sensitive um, or who have sensory processing disorders do not sleep well and often can have behavioral problems later on. And it has nothing to do with the amount of time parents need to help get their kids to sleep. These are the parents that often have to do 10 different things to help their child sleep. They're not doing anything wrong by doing that. They're basically playing the hand they've been dealt. Sure. And it's sure. these other things that lead to it. But unfortunately, what often gets demonized is what the parent's doing to get their child to Mm -hmm. sleep. And notably, it was very interesting. A friend of mine was talking to a doctor about it who luckily up here was not advocating things like sleep training because, as he said, with many of these children, you have underlying anxiety issues, whether it's the autism or um, 
the sensory processing disorders or later other anxiety um, or developmental delays. And many of the things we do to take away these comfort things increases their anxiety. Sure. So I never want parents to feel like they're reading this research without the knowledge that, yeah, there may be something that shows somewhat of a link. But when you look at the actual research and you look at what's really being done, there isn't anything that supports that infant sleep and what parents are doing now is predictive of their sleep later on. That's so important, Tracy. Uh, As I hear you talking, I'm thinking about one of the things that I preach when I teach my comprehensive lactation course to people who want to become lactation consultants. I tell them that although there is, an, there is a link or an association or a correlation or something or other, that that, that is not necessarily causation. Mm-hmm. And the example that I give is, uh, you know, the, we, we don't take the Washington Post anymore, but we, we used to. You know, the kid would drop the Washington Post on our front porch and later the sun would rise. Well, that doesn't mean that the Washington Post on your front porch makes the sun rise, all right? There is certainly some association. There is some link. But the event uh, does not necessarily cause the other event. In fact, I would even posit that with what you've just suggested, that, that those things probably go bi-directionally. Exactly. You did, however, bring up something a couple of times about sleep problems. Mm-hmm. And I've often heard, well, sleep problems are the explanation for why a baby can't sleep through the night. Okay, that's great. But I'm not sure if I believe that, myth or fact. And also, what constitutes a sleep problem? This is a great question because really outside of, well, Sorry, let me think here. Okay, the best way to put it is that in terms of expert views, there really isn't such a thing as we don't have a concrete definition of a sleep problem. Um, What's happened oftentimes in the research is people have decided that things like, okay, more than three wakings a night and more than 20 minutes to fall asleep. Those are suddenly labeled sleep problems. Now, the problem with that is that when you look at the research, and this has actually been done, you suddenly find that about 40 to 50% of infants now have sleep problems. And these no longer correlate with even parental reports of problems. So some people say it's just if the parent has a problem with the sleep that that should count. <laughs> and so now you get uh, researchers coming up with some definitive line that has nothing to do with either how the infant is doing um, or how even the parents feel the infant is sleeping. So you can kind of take that definition with a, you know, box of salt. Right, then right. you've got the parents who, it's the parents' problem, who will report whether or not it's a problem. And the problem you get with that is some parents may report that their baby waking two times a night is problematic They because their expectations are so skewed. Uh, that they or they live in a society. I look at the U.S. where you have a lack of uh, parental leave, and parents are expected back at work. And so, having to wake at night, you're told not to bed share. So you're waking up trying to feed and stay awake in a rocking chair. Right. That these things do constitute a problem for the parent. But I would also wonder that. That might be a problem for that parent, but that but it, exact same behavior in that in that baby might not be a problem for some other parent. Exactly. And that's right? why we go by exactly. Yeah. So it's the problem becomes, is it a 
problem for the parent themselves, but that's not an infant sleep problem. That's, right. you know, what I would say is a family sleep problem um, or a parental sleep problem. And then there are cases where I think, even though it's not objectively defined, there are definite acceptance of problems in which if you have a child that, say, is waking every hour screaming blue murder, something's wrong. Now, the problem I have with that is that often these are not sleep problems. Sleep, I always say to families, sleep is like the canary in the coal mine. It's telling you when something else is going on. And sleep itself is often not the issue at hand. And we need to learn to get away from this idea of pinning everything on sleep and ignoring issues that happen outside of sleep. So, Oh, woman, you so hit it. (laughs) Oh, you just hit it, I think. It's, well, and you know, with feeding, like feeding is one of the biggest problems for families. And a bad latch, a child with an undiagnosed tie or parents with expectations of only feeding their child on a scheduled interval will have fussier babies who are waking more regularly because they're not getting their nutritional needs for whatever reason going on. And when those are addressed, sleep often follows. Well, I'm just thinking about, um, I was in San Diego about three nights ago, two nights ago, whatever it was. And uh, I knew that I had to get up at 10 minutes after four in order to make my flight back to the East Coast. I swear I woke up about every 40 minutes, just nervous about whether or not I was going to wake up at 10 minutes after four. And so that is really not about my sleep. It's Mm -hmm. really about the fact that if I miss my flight, it's not a happy thing. And so this is like on my mind. It's Mm -hmm. a symptom of what's going on in my life. It's not about whether or not I can sleep. Exactly. And infants, yeah. And that's with infants. They, biologically, we should not have, we would have failed as a species if you had to teach your infant how to sleep. And this isn't to say that there aren't some infants who really struggle because of a variety of different issues where they do need gentle help and guidance from parents in terms of, you know, support and being there uh, throughout their infancy with sleep and more rocking to sleep. But when children are not sleeping well, I would say, I want to say almost all the time, but I'm going to say at least 90, 95% of the time, it's something else. There's an underlying issue that is just being missed. And with our society that focuses so much on sleep, it often continues to be missed, uh, which can have so many detrimental effects on you know, the feeding relationship, particularly for breastfeeding mothers who are often told to switch to formula under the myth yeah. that their yeah. infant will sleep better and sleep is so important that you have to, you know, sacrifice the breastfeeding in order to get the sleep. Uh, Tracy, uh, you just brought me to where I want to go. You just okay. brought me right there. Yes. Uh, which is, <laughs> I, have he- I have heard this so many th- times. Well, feeding, sleeping, you know, they're really two entirely separate issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you say? Fact or fiction? Oh, fiction, beyond belief. They are so intertwined. Okay. Uh, oh. yeah. And, well, we know, well, first off, especially with infants, they're nursing around the clock. They need to eat. So at some point, you have to bring sleep into the equation because they're going to be eating throughout the night. So that very basic fact alone brings the two together. But beyond that, I here I 
refer back to Helen Ball quite a bit in oh, at yes. Durham University because she's yes, done she's so excellent. much work on this. It's amazing. amazing. But yes. we see both parental cognitions about feeding and sleep are highly linked. So, you know, many times we see parents reporting that their reason for switching to formula is to get more sleep or their belief that uh, breastfeeding is somehow associated with problems sleeping in infants long term because of these more frequent wakings early on. Uh, bed sharing, for instance, which facilitates breastfeeding is the sleeping arrangement. And I know James McKenna has now referred to it as breast sleeping. Mm -hmm. And so we see this link between sleeping arrangements and feeding type and expectations on sleep. That was one of Helen's, I find, most interesting research was that she found that parental expectations on infant sleep were almost directly related to how parents were feeding their babies, that parents who fed their babies formula were much more in line with expecting babies to sleep these long stretches throughout the night. Breastfeeding mothers had different expectations for their infant sleep. They expected them to wake. They expected this to be a normal biological part of infancy. So we really can't get away. We can't talk about sleep without talking about feeding method, um, simply right. because it is so intertwined with um, at the very least, parental cognitions. Uh, and then when I, you... Pardon me? Yeah? Uh, I guess I've really noticed that as I have taught about breastfeeding. I always find myself talking about sleep, and then I say, wait a minute, did I just go down a rabbit hole here? <laughs> and then I say, no, I really didn't, because pretty much for the baby, he's either sleeping or eating, and those are the two main activities that he does. So... And yeah, I, I feel like you have to address together. that. Yeah. yeah, and they do it together. I mean, my Absolutely. the amount of time my little boy is at the breast asleep, still suckling. It's they go very much hand in hand for him. Absolutely. Uh, and so I think it is really hard when we have people trying to take them apart. They're really doing a disservice to parents because they then have this idea that they should be separate. That you can breastfeed without consideration, you can have one set of expectations for feeding and one set of expectations for sleep. And you can't. If you have breastfeeding expectations, you have to have the appropriate biological sleep expectations to enable breastfeeding or else you will find that you are at a higher risk of losing, you know, your milk supply because you're putting, for instance, greater expectations on sleeping longer stretches and thus having earlier night weaning. Um, and a number of other issues. Uh, don't go away, Tracy. Yeah. And don't go away, uh, any of the rest of you. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back after this short break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. What's the weirdest place I've ever done it? Probably at my niece's high school musical during intermission. I've done it on an airplane. In our minivan while his mother was driving. Hi, Mom. What's the weirdest place I've ever pumped? Probably the car dealership. In the bathroom at my sister's wedding. Finding a good place to pump can be hard. Donating breast milk is easy. No matter where you've pumped, you'd make a good donor to the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin. Learn how your milk can save lives at milkbank.org slash good donor. 
Breastfeeding Outlook, owned and operated by Marie Biancuso, is America's premier provider of breastfeeding education. If you're a nurse, lactation consultant, dietitian, midwife, physician, doula, or other professional, Breastfeeding Outlook is your source for SERPs, nursing contact hours, and CEUs to meet your certification or licensure requirements in all 50 states. Join Marie at a seminar in one of many U.S. cities or learn online. Marie has helped thousands to pass the IBLCE exam on the first try, and she can help you, too. Call to find out how to get an easy payment plan for Marie's IBLCE exam prep course. And if your hospital is seeking the baby-friendly hospital designation, we can help you with that, too, through expert training and value-based consultation. We have a variety of packages to meet your needs without breaking your budget. Sign up for a live or online course or inquire about training today. Please visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Evidence for your practice starts here. Visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listening to Born to Be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm your host for Born to Be Breastfed. I'm here today with Tracy Castles from evolutionaryparenting.com. Tracy, a lot of times what I hear from parents of young infants, now I'm not talking about kindergartners here, young infants, uh, the parents basically say, well, I shouldn't have to soothe the baby, calm the baby, whatever, because babies have to learn to do that by themselves. And so they sort of see themselves as uh, not part of that equation, because they feel that the babies need to learn how to do that. Uh, what do you say, myth or fact? Uh, myth. Big, big myth. Well, it's particularly the way they're going about it. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. Babies do obviously eventually need to learn how to regulate their emotions. But uh, the methods in which we go about by removing ourselves are actually completely antithetical to them doing that. So <laughs> when we look at the emotion regulation research... Uh, the very first form of regulation for an infant is what we call co-regulation. It's seeking okay. out a caregiver and trying to get them to help calm you. And they do this by the process of synchrony, is that when we are calm, we actually have a physiological connection to our infants. And our stress levels mirror theirs, and we're able to bring them down. It's like a little wave riding where someone's just a little bit ahead and behind. And when our kids get upset, if we can remain calm, we help bring them back down. And this is how they learn. So we know we have a wealth of evidence that the more responsive we are to them when they are distressed, the better their emotion regulation is later on. When we are not responsive to them, we haven't given them the foundation to even know how to self-soothe wow. or how to regulate. So we're actually doing the complete opposite of what we're hoping for them. Now, this doesn't mean that they don't be quiet. 
It just means that they become more internally stressed without having the means to actively, helpfully cope with it. And we see this later on, too. So these are not just in infancy, they don't have the means to do it, but years later as well. I'm thinking, Tracy, I'm thinking about other contexts that I've heard synchrony, but as I hear you describing it, I'm thinking that to some extent, the parent is role modeling the calmness. And to some extent, it is, as my mother would say, brushing off onto the baby. And I guess I'm also thinking that just because the baby doesn't seem to be reacting doesn't mean he isn't reacting. Is that true? Uh, Absolutely. Uh And that's, I think your definition of synchrony is great. Um, That is exactly what it's doing. And it's worth noting, though, that sometimes our problems come because our baby brushes off on us. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We get panicked and stressed when they're upset. And in that case, you end up with a synchronous cycle that's feeding negatively. And often that comes when parents don't realize that they have the capacity to help calm their infant by just focusing on their own calmness for a moment and helping bring that infant back down into a calmer state. Um, But yeah, it's... Absolutely. We, they, we're trying to model this for them. We're giving them the foundation. The more they have it done for them, because they don't have a huge amount of physiological control, um, which sounds bizarre because we think it's just something that happens. But we get, they no. get worked up and they don't know how to switch it off. They haven't learned that yet. And so part of how we've evolved is to have someone else help us with that by doing it for us through synchrony. Hence, these periods where we expect to be so close to our infants in terms of touch and proximity, because those are the main ways in which we do physiologically calm them down. Yeah, I guess I'm also thinking about what you said about switching on and off. I'm thinking that very young babies have difficulty switching anything on or off, or if they do get it switched on, it's switched all the way on sometimes, Yeah, as, as opposed to... I guess, I guess what I'm saying is they don't have the ability to really moderate sometimes. Oh, I think moderation is completely absent from their vocabulary. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's no, you know, you see a baby get distressed and often, you know, it starts as a whimper within five seconds. They're full It goes blown. full blast. Yep. Yeah. Because they, yeah. you're exactly right. There is no sense of being able to regulate. Emotion regulation, the parts of the brain that allow us to regulate are not mature. And therefore, they are unable to do it, which is why they have us. And that's why the very first signs of real emotion regulation are not them actually doing anything themselves to calm themselves independently. It's seeking out someone to help calm them. And so when we think about your baby crying out to you in the middle of the night, that's their method of saying, I still need you. I need yeah. you to help me because with this because I, I don't know how to do it. Yes. Yes. So, Tracy, I know with certainty we are going to ask you back for another (laughs) whole show because there's so much more to say about this. The other thing that keeps floating around in my life, at least, is the whole idea of sleep training. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that that's, that's, that's really an hour's worth of talk in and of itself, and we'll invite our listeners to come back and we'll 
I've already invited you to come back, so you know that's on. <laughs> We're doing that, girl. But here's the thing. Uh, in the short minute that we have or so left, could you please address the idea that sleep training uh, is is completely unrelated to early weaning? Uh, Pet or false? Peeve. False. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Um at the very brief basics of it, which you know, is nighttime breastfeeding is essential to supply. And when we cut that out, especially early on, we're sending a signal to our body that it can reduce the supply, um, which often raises the risk of losing your milk or losing enough of it that you start supplementing, which then causes that cycle to continue and the very definition of sleep training and I refer generally to the extinction methods like crying it out and controlled crying but really almost anything very early uh, is to night wane whether it's a part of whether it's a discussed part of the process or not but if you want your child to go eight to twelve hours without feeding um, because they're sleeping you are inherently night waning and you can't expect to have the same breastfeeding relationship no. that you would if you were breastfeeding on demand, which includes feeding throughout the night. And people simply need to understand that this is not just, we're not sitting here making this up. We know that there, <laughs> we know that there's science and I know that there are many people yeah. who have in fact sort of not understood that this is a potential con- uh, consequence of sleeping through the night. Well, as you know, this hour always goes way too fast, and this one went especially fast. Uh, thank you so much to Tracy Castles from evolutionaryparenting.com. I would encourage you to visit Tracy's site. She has so much good reading on there. I've spent a ton of time reading on her site, and I had something to learn, so I think it's a pretty fair shot that others will as well. (laughs) Tracy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Marie. This is wonderful. I look forward to being back. Oh, uh, I'm sure I speak on behalf of all of our listeners and saying uh, we'll be happy to have you back. I would also like to ask everybody, please, to visit my website at borntobebreastfed.com. And uh, there we will have books, media, and other things that you might be interested in if you are a parent, if you are a professional, please take a look at my site, which is breastfeedingoutlook.com. If you're a professional and you're looking for continuing education about breastfeeding and lactation, remember, I'm your source for evidence-based practice and education on the web and sometimes in your city. My courses and tons of resources, including some free resources and my blog, much more are there at breastfeedingoutlook.com. I'm Marie Biancuzzo, and I promise I'll help you to cut through the myths and clarify the facts about breastfeeding next Monday, same time, same channel. In the meanwhile, remember, your baby was born to be breastfed. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuzo next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do its best for you and your baby.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.